Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of Professors in Rooms Getting Coffee with Dr. Justin Winsenberg and me, Stephen Jones. In the second half of today's episode, we pick up on our conversation with Mark Charles, who is running for president of the United States as an independent in 2020. To hear the first half of our conversation with Mark, check out episode 15 at profsinrooms.com. All right, so uh, what was the highlight for you this week? Well, I've got a little bit of mixed feelings about this one because I just started reading uh, Mark Charles' book, Unsettling Truths. And so I'm excited that we've got another episode with him today. But the reason I'm a little bit uh, unsettled about my highlight for the week is because it's surrounding the 4th of July, Mm. which there's nothing wrong with in particular uh, in terms of just the date itself. But I started to think a little bit differently about the holiday, I think, reflecting on it a little bit. We'll get to that maybe in the insight. But a highlight for me was seeing my son enjoy fireworks for the first time. Um, We were we were we were down in Iowa uh, visiting my mom and they had fireworks shooting off everywhere around us but he'd never really seen any fireworks before we weren't sure if he if he'd be okay with them you know how kids can get right, scared right. pretty easily with that but he he really enjoyed them and so it was it was fun to see his anticipation in terms of just waiting for the fireworks but that's everything great. else that's kind of associated you know necessarily with um, the 4th of July as Independence Day has has made me a little bit unsettled in light of thinking about independence for who you know right right <laughs> and, and so maybe Maybe I'll get to some of that on low light and, and uh, insight, but anyhow, the fireworks themselves were were uh, were fun for to see my son reacting to them. Nice. How about for you? What was the highlight? Well, uh, so we our kids were with my in laws for a couple of weeks. Um, well, mm-hmm. actually, it was longer than that. It was like three and a half weeks. We were there for the first week, and then here at the end to pick them up. But I don't know. It's just good to be back with the family, right? It was good for them to yeah. have some time out at the ranch and you know helping out. Uh, uh, yeah, that was good. But I don't know. It's really fun to be back together as a family. We also watched Hamilton this weekend. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to catch it yet, but I know it's on Disney Plus now. Uh, oh my gosh! Getting we're not getting any um any sort of uh you know advertising rights to be able to say this or anything. <laughs> yeah, but. That's right. but it's it's yeah, it's worth the watch. It was really it's funny. My kids are totally into musicals, which is interesting because I have not been, but they love Broadway musicals, and I but I cried. So nice. All right. Which wasn't my low light. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. I've been meaning to see it. You know, I have friends who went and saw it when, when it was here in Minneapolis. Oh, and, yeah, and yeah. I haven't had a chance to catch it yet. A low light for you. A uh, low light for me. So I think it's in some ways related to what you were talking about with the fourth. Although I, I did hear it was really interesting. Pastor Watts, you know, on the Postulating Solutions podcast, he was speaking before he was preaching. And he, sure. he talked about how, from his perspective, it was good to celebrate Independence Day, even though there's all of this other stuff, he was kind of like, we should celebrate this because there's something good here. And we also should change things. Um, hmm. But but that wasn't my low light. But it's related because I was out in the Black Hills, actually. Oh, yeah. The at, Toward the end of last week before the fourth. And, um, and I love the Black Hills, but for the last decade or so, whenever I've gone out there, I, I feel two ways. One is that I just, I love it. It's a beautiful place. Mm. You know, when you go in the summer, it's nice to get a little bit of coolness, get away from the mosquitoes and all that. But, but I also have this awareness that our history there is, has, has a lot of wrong to it. Right. And yeah. even, you know, I remember watching Barry my heart at wounded knee and, yeah. you know, really, Good film. But one of the things that it mentions at the end there, uh, that the Supreme Court has acknowledged that the land was stolen. And what they did was set, uh, basically, there was a settlement, a, a monetary settlement, and the Sioux people have not taken that settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's in a trust somewhere because basically they're saying we're not giving up our claim on that land that 
that land, yeah. you know, uh, based on this earlier treaty is ours and that, and, and legally it still should be. And so I just, I always feel really conflicted being there because this is an area that's, it's actively contested and the history of it is, it's wrong, right? Um, and then, yeah. and then of course, Mount Rushmore is even more, <laughs> Mount Rushmore has this history of, you know, being a holy mountain and then being taken, blown up and desecrated. <laughs> and I, and I just, I don't know. So I, I think kind of what you were expressing with the 4th of July, I just, I feel conflicted and I don't, I don't know what to do with it. Um, but I'll, I'll just say this real quick. I, <laughs> I was driving around in the middle of the night on uh, Thursday looking for someplace where I could get enough internet signal to post the first episode with Mark Charles. And I was like, well, <laughs> I guess if you're going to be doing something in the Black Hills, lifting up the voice of a native <laughs> presidential candidate probably isn't the worst thing to be doing. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, how about you? What's the low light? You know, yeah, I guess maybe we could just continue that thought a little bit. It, it's interesting. You know, I went to Mount Rushmore when I was a kid and thought it was pretty pretty cool and didn't think anything of it. And then I had a chance a few years ago to kind of just to do a quick drive by. We didn't have a chance to actually go in and, and look around, but yeah, my perspective on it has changed over the years. I think, um, you know, in the, in the sense that you're talking about like uh, the, the brutal, I wouldn't call it even irony, a slap in the face in some ways that we would put our American presence in all places on that hill, you know, and kind of the symbolic gesture of what mm-hmm. it represents in some ways to native folks who who are well aware, I think, of the history of uh, a westward expansion and all that and manifest destiny, which from theological standpoint is really disturbing to mm-hmm. me. It's one of the things, you know, we talked about in our faith, religion, political powers class when we talk about the idea that some people believe that America was founded as a sort of Christian nation. And one of the things that always bothers me about that discussion is that not many people consider what sort of brand of Christianity was being promoted by some of the settlers and the people who were moving west, which was this sort of brutally unhealthy and terrible idea that that God had sort of granted the United States or granted this land to white folks to take as a sort of new conquest, you know, in parallel, like with the story of, of Israel and, and Joshua. Okay, so I just, I, I, I've been reading, I'll talk about more of this in my insight, but I came across Deuteronomy mm-hmm. 9, 5 and 6. And I think it's really relevant to this because if you wanted to appropriate that text to the American experience and say, you know, it, the way that an American Zionist does, there's this fascinating thing. It says it is not because of your righteousness or integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land. So I don't think you should apply it to us. No, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think it applies. But one of the things that's fascinating is twice. The next verse says the same thing. It's not because of your righteousness. Right. And, yeah. and our story is it's because of our righteousness. Our, our story, I mean, the American narrative. The American narrative. Right. And, yeah. and I, it just struck me that I was like, as God's talking to his people, as they're getting ready to go in. And, and I mean, it's a, it's a difficult story, but I just, this corrective of God saying, don't think that somehow you're righteous, <laughs> right? Like, and better and, than the people somehow. Well, and I, you know, we don't have the time, I think, to discuss all the problems and questions of conquest in the Old Testament, right. but or in the Hebrew Bible. But it's it's also just disturbing to think about how that narrative was appropriated in the early stages of, of settlers moving westward. And I can't help but think about that in some ways with, with the 4th of July, even though westward expansion was 
wasn't in place, you know, when it came to the establishment of the United States in 1776, and in the same way that it was, you know, a little less than a hundred years later when the Black Hills were taken and when gold was discovered out west. But in the in the same sense, it's just uh, it's made me think a little bit about. I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody who's very patriotic and who's very proud of America or American heritage or of their ancestors who maybe moved to this land or anything like that. But I also want to be sensitive to the fact that like uh, when, when we talk about 4th of July's Independence Day, it, it does raise questions for me. Well, independence for who? For mm-hmm. for the people who moved from England over here to escape tyranny only to basically enforce other kind of awful forms of tyranny and or oppression upon the na- native folks who lived in this land. Mm-hmm. It's not a narrative we like to talk about. It's a disturbing one. And it's not one that I think that we need to, like you said, what Watts was talking about, we don't need to make that the entirety maybe of, of 4th of July in terms of how we conceive of it. There might be some helpful things in thinking about being liberated from a uh, wicked, <laughs> wicked regime, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, the American narrative is just so complicated. And it, it just made me think differently a little bit about it. And I've known this in the past, but I just had thought about it maybe as much. Some of talking with Mark, I think, helped to have it on the forefront of my mind. So that was something that I've just been thinking about, which maybe I don't know if there, what insight there is in there, but there's something I think just there's about the seed of something anyway. Yeah. There's a seed of something we've been talking about this, you know, in other episodes, but what do we do with history in this country that has some dark turns and moments that are difficult to admit, but that are probably necessary to illuminate in order to be able to find some sort of collective identity in the U.S. Yeah. I don't know the answer or how, but I mean, you know, Mark scratches the surface, I think, on some of those issues. It's what's really interesting to me about some of his presidential candidacy. It's not dialogue that I hear many other presidential candidates having at the moment. But yeah, there's there's got to be some insight in there. I guess I'm just struggling exactly hard to articulate it, except that, you know, I don't want to be in this mode of like everything about American history or about Americans, America's foundations are bad, but I don't want to turn a blind eye to some of the things that were overlooked in our history textbooks and some of the things that Mark has been illuminating and, and others as well. Mm-hmm. How about for you? I've got two maybe. So one is related to what you're talking about and it's the question of how do we have a complex view of our history and present without resorting to polarization? And so I'm thinking of the... Reversal. Right, yeah. To use uh, intercultural development inventory terms, right? IDI terms. Yeah, the, the developmental model of intercultural sensitivity, intercultural development continuum. Yeah, this, this idea of reversal where you basically, instead of being ethnocentric against some other people, you become ethnocentric against your own people. Like that actually on that model is not interculturally competent at all. It looks sometimes like intercultural competence. It masquerades as intercultural competence, but Mm. it isn't. And I think, you know, that question of how do you, on the one hand, have an honest dialogue critiquing things that need to be critiqued while also humanizing and complexifying our story and our situation. So what's the answer? (laughs) <laughs> so how do you, well, well, what insight is there you have maybe in, into that process? Yeah. I mean, so there is this process of becoming more interculturally competent and it's messy, you know, and I think that that's, yeah. that's part of it is like when you think you're having the same conversation and you're not regarding, you know, are we just saying America's the worst? Like that's not helpful, right? No. Because actually the U.S. has some really great things about it. Yeah. How do, how do you look for the full humanity of everybody that you're looking at and 
Uh, yeah, it's messy. I, I do want to just throw in one other insight real quick, which is that I've been reading through the NIV Sola Scriptura, the Bible Project one. Yeah, I like that. And our listeners might not know what that is, but you're talking about the Sola Scriptura version of the NIV was the four volume publication. That's a reader's version. Right. And, you know, I always kind of get up on the pedestal to talk about this because what's so fascinating to me about it for our listeners who are who are into reading the Bible, it's that it takes out all the verses and all the chapter headings and all that. So it gives you a fairly seamless read. It's as if you're reading like a novel. Right. right. And the text is bigger and it's hardbound. Yeah. So it feels good to hold it. But yeah. reading it, I, I just finished volume one, which is mm. the law and the, what is it? The law and the former prophets. The former prophets. Yeah. It's very, very heavy at the end, right? Like mm-hmm. you see the promise, what could happen. And then you see through Joshua judges, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, just this total meltdown. And it's really, really, I mean, it's in some places disgusting and it's in some places just so sad and sobering. And then at the end, the people are taken away, right? Yeah. First the, the Northern tribes and then Judah is taken away later. And by the end of the volume, that's where you're at, right? Yeah. And it's kind of like this, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> then you turn and the next volume is the latter prophets. Yeah. And it is like a breath of fresh air. It's like, yeah. you get in, you open. And the first thing is Jonah wrestling <laughs> with God about not wanting to let the compassion of God be known. And then right after that is Amos. And Amos is like, okay, all those terrible things that you just read about, <laughs> here's what here's what God has to say about it. And critiquing all these things that kind of in Samuel and Kings, there's a lot of it that goes without commentary. It's kind of, it's like, this happened and then this happened and this happened. Yeah. And then you get to Amos and Amos is like, and here's the moral evaluation of that, which feels like it's missing sometimes in his other books. And it just, huh. yeah, I don't know. Although there is this myth that like those early books of the Bible are like kind of just history. In other words, like it's kind of just giving you this historical narrative, but there are these moments throughout where it gives this perspective on it, which relates to our conversation we're having here about American history in some ways. So the volume that you're talking Mm -hmm. about really covers the history of ancient Israel and their experiences leading up all the way to this terrible displacement of them being taken out of their land Mm -hmm. and being brought into ancient Babylon. Right. And so what's interesting about that is the capacity that ancient Israel had to be able to think and Mm -hmm. reflect critically upon their own history and on what led them to those experiences. And it's interesting. So there is something there, I think, about the process of reflecting on one's history that is extremely insightful. So even for folks, I think, who aren't Bible readers or who maybe aren't people who would proclaim themselves to be Jewish or Christian, I think could find some value in these books in that there's something about the process of reflecting on one's history mm-hmm. that is just so fascinating. And the ability to, to think both critically about one's past and also to think positively about the things that, that were foundations that were meaningful. Right. I think that that's so fascinating and it's, and it's all there. It's not just that. There's a lot more to it than that. It's not just the story of, of ancient Israel, but there is that component, I think, that relates to some of the conversations conversation we're having here. I think you're right. Yeah. And and I think also the role of the prophetic voice. Yeah. And explain that a little bit. Because I think, you know, you and I know, I think what we're talking about when we say that. But for some of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with that terminology, how would you describe what you mean by that? Yeah. I think in particular, the form of the prophetic voice that I'm thinking of is really this, uh, this mm-hmm. truth telling and calling out injustice, calling out unrighteousness and saying, look, this isn't okay. 
and it yeah. should be different. And often speaking truth to power in a, in a way that is costly mm-hmm. to oneself. One of my college profs said, you know, God has never left his people without a witness to what he actually intended. And often we see the people of God kind of get on these weird, yeah. you know, like, like bad paths. What are you doing? And, and then sometimes people will say, well, they just didn't know any better. But if you look through history, there are always voices yeah. saying, hey, you could know better, yeah. right? I like that definition that you use of prophetic there. It aligns, I think, somewhat with what I used to do when I was teaching a class at a different school. And that is when we talk about the concept of prophetic, I would actually use music from American history. And I would try to show how it was a voice that was calling out certain injustices. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, only, you know, that's only one aspect of what counts as prophetic voice, but it's an important yes, one. Right. So I, w- I would play songs like from Bob Dylan and from Neil Young and from just from others who historically speaking in the 20th and 21st century have been voices that called out against some of the injustices in society. Mm-hmm. And there's many of them. I mean, and you can think too about the hip hop movements and you can think about all sorts of other, the blues even in a lot of ways, right? We're kind of started in some ways as this sort of cultural right. phenomenon of doing some of that. And so like there is this definition of prophetic, I think that is very potent and powerful and that fits with things like that. I like what you're saying. <laughs> I'm looking forward to having another episode here with Mark. It's actually part of the longer conversation that we had with him, uh, what, what it amounts to about a couple of weeks ago now. And yet we're, we're able to kind of continue the conversation. And I think what we'll find here with what he has to say today is there's going to be some things that maybe are a little more jarring to some of our listeners. Well, and I think we're maybe jarring to us too, right? And, like, yeah. And, and jarring to us, I think maybe in some ways, but I really appreciated, you know, the perspective that Mark came from and talking about this concept of prophetic voice. I think there's something very profound in what he's doing in trying to publicly address some of the wrongs and, and some of the injustices that have happened in our country and using that as a means to talk about why he wants to become president because he wants to right some of those wrongs, I think is, is something very interesting to think about. And even I think for those who might be thinking through, you know, this next election in terms of two political candidates. I think there's something about what Mark's doing that should cause us to sit back and reflect on the political process and how we go about maybe voting. (laughs) And this isn't me telling anybody how they should vote. It's more just thinking about like, what are the things that we value and how do we end up making decisions on who to elect as president? And I think the fact that Mark is trying to right some of those wrongs is, is bringing attention to issues that are not being spoken about publicly by any of the two major candidates, at least not in the way that Mark's talking about it. I, I was having a conversation with somebody this week about that. They had listened to the episode and they were saying, you know, I just, in my mind, these are polar opposites. Yeah. And then they just realized like, actually, if they step back a little bit, they're not at all polar opposites. Mm-hmm. They certainly have major policy distinctions between them, right? But in the realm of what's possible, they're actually fairly similar, uh, which I think Mark brings up. I think the other thing about this conversation with Mark is there's been a lot of a lot of conversation recently about the role of history, right? Partly because of monuments and mm-hmm. things like that, which is it, fascinating. It's something we've been talking about for months now, <laughs> you know, especially yeah, the episode is. with James. But I think, yeah, that question of what does it mean to do history well? I think part of what Mark brings up today is really relevant to that. I think other people might look at some of what he says and say, well, you can look at it another way. That's fine. But let's have that conversation, right? Let's, you know, recognize our engagement of history is something that we have current responsibility for. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I think about some of my own experiences in my life growing up. And I think about what can happen with some folks where there are times, you know, where we grow up and we have these personal narratives. And then we realize when we get a little bit older that the things that were happening to us when we were younger or part of our family history is way more complicated and way more messy than we ever knew it when we were kids. I feel like that is some of how I feel about reflecting now on American history after hearing people who've illuminated aspects of our historical past in ways that I hadn't previously known about. And it's not that I look back upon Mm -hmm. like all of that with just complete and utter distaste, but it is complicated, right? It's I'd say it's similar to that experience of, of discovering your own personal family history in ways where you're like, well, there are some very good things, but right. okay, there are things that I didn't really realize at the time <laughs> you know, were, were going on that I now understand better. That complicates the narrative in some ways. And I feel that way in some ways. And of course, I wasn't around mm-hmm. in the foundations of American history, but I feel that way in terms of my thoughts about this conversation. So I, I, ho- I hope at least our, our listeners can engage the conversation, even if they don't feel like they're jiving with everything that's said. We'll be back in a moment with Mark Charles, 2020 independent candidate for the president of the United States. One of the things you mentioned uh, was that some of your frustration arose out of your your exposure to the doctrine of discovery. For our listeners who aren't familiar with that term and uh, with the terminology, I noticed that your book "Settling uh, Truth" has the the subtitle "The Ongoing Dehumanization Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery." Yeah, who aren't familiar, what is the doctrine of discovery, and what is it about your um, your your exposure to that idea that's helped to push some of your uh, your campaign. Yeah, so the doctrine of discovery. This is the short, you know, forty five second elevator version. It's it's a series of papal bulls written between fourteen fifty two and fourteen ninety three. The Dum Diversus wrote and written by Pope Gregory the Fifth. It says things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever. Reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Convert them to yours exploitation and profit. The doctrine of discovery is essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are less than human and their land is yours to take. So this is literally the doctrine that the European nations go into Africa, colonize the continent and enslave the people. They didn't believe them to be human. It's the same doctrine that allowed Columbus, who was lost at sea, to land in this new world, which was already inhabited by millions and claimed to have discovered it. We start the book out with the phrase, you cannot discover lands that are already inhabited. You can steal lands that are inhabited. You can colonize lands that are inhabited. You cannot discover them. So the fact that to this day, we have monuments, we have history books, we have proclamations declaring Columbus as the discoverer of America Mm -hmm. reveals the implicit racial bias of the nation, which is that Native people, specifically and people of color in general, are not fully human. Now, this doctrine gets embedded deeply into the foundations of the country. So the Declaration of Independence, which starts with the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal. 30 lines later, in the same declaration, refers to natives as merciless Indian savages. The Constitution, which starts with this inclusive sounding term, we the people. A few lines later, Article 1, Section 2, which defines who is and who is not covered by this Constitution, It never mentions women, which is important because there's 51 gender-specific male pronouns throughout the entire Constitution. It specifically excludes natives, and it counts Africans as three-fifths. So who does that leave? Well, in 1787, that literally leaves white men. 
we don't talk about that enough as a nation, that the reason we have a constitution is not to give rights and be inclusive to everybody. No, that's not why it was written. A constitution was written specifically to protect white landowning men. One of my most freeing days as a dual citizen of the U.S. and the Navajo Nation was the day I publicly and personally acknowledged that the constitution was not written to protect Native peoples. Mm. And so it, it allows me to remove this facade or this mythology we have about the Constitution that it exists to provide for equality or equity. That's not why the Constitution exists. The Constitution exists mm. to protect white landowning men. And so because I can acknowledge that, it allows me to actually wrestle with and what do we need to do to change it? What do we need to do to actually make this into what we want it to be? And that's where my campaign is born out. And that uh, is in some ways summarized in your first hundred days plan, right? Yeah. So just last week, we released our 100 day plan. What's our what's our plan for our first 100 days in office? And probably about four years ago, I did something that most Americans never do and something I hadn't done for most of my life, which is I read the Constitution from cover to cover, mm-hmm. all the way from the preamble down to the 27th Amendment. Now, I knew that there was some racist things said in there. I knew that I was already aware of Article 1, Section 2, but I, I read the whole thing. And as I read it, I was shocked. Not only was Article 1, Section 2 there, which, again, excludes natives and counts Africans as three-fifths, but I was mortified to see how many gender-specific male pronouns there were. He, him, and his. All throughout the Constitution, littered, all the way down to the amendment, including, I think, the 25th Amendment is the last one that has gender-specific male pronouns, and there's not a single female pronoun in the entire document. Now, some people argue and say, well, that's the old English, and he could refer to all people. Yeah, well, maybe it could, but that's because the old English was a very sexist group of people. (laughs) Like it's not, they might have been able to apply that way, but women had no right to vote. Mm-hmm. Let's not pretend they were some, you know, society of equity. No, they were deeply sexist people. And so the language reflected that. Well, what we need to do as a nation is we need to begin to address this. And so I actually went through the constitution on my computer. I copied and pasted it onto my computer and I used the strike through font. And I just, rather than saying, let's put an amendment at the end that tells us this is what it means. And this is what that means. And this now means that. Let's actually change the language of the Constitution so you don't have to read all this racism, sexism, and white supremacy and then get to the end and find, oh, we actually meant this instead of that. Mm I went through the Constitution. I didn't change balance of powers. I didn't change checks and balances. I didn't do anything else. I simply removed the racist, the sexist, and the white supremacist language. And what I found as I began talking about this more publicly around the country is my edited version of the Constitution actually read the way most people thought the Constitution read. Right. That makes sense. Like most people think the Constitution stands for equality when actually it doesn't. By removing the racist and sexist language, yes, there are other deep flaws within the Constitution, but this first fix of simply changing the language allows us to actually read the Constitution in a much more even way. And so when you get down to the more troubling parts, which is the 13th Amendment, and again, most Americans think that we've abolished slavery as a nation. That's the general consensus. But if you read the 13th Amendment, what it states is neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, where the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the U.S. Mm-hmm. But we didn't abolish slavery. We merely redefined and codified it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. And people are even more shocked to learn that that was Abraham Lincoln's vision all along. If you read his remarks in the Lincoln-Douglas debate, he was adamant about institutionalizing white supremacy, saying things like, I have no intention of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor allowing them to hold office, nor to intermarry, 
stating that he did not want them to become citizens. He did not believe the Declaration of Independence applied to them. And then in his inaugural address, if you read his inaugural address, he references something not by name, but by what it was. It was there was an amendment sitting in the Senate. They had passed it that morning called the Corwin Amendment. The Corwin Amendment never got ratified, but it was passed the morning of his inauguration because the Senate was afraid that states were going to start leaving the Union. And so they passed this amendment to constitutionally protect slavery in the states where it already existed. And in his inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln stated that while this was the assumed practice already, he had no problem with that being made explicit. Mark, we had a, we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago who kind of reflecting on how the history textbooks tend to make heroes out of people. Mm. And uh, Abraham Lincoln seems to be one of those. I, I thought it was interesting in your TED Talk how you addressed the fact that there's some things that Lincoln had said that's even etched into the memorial in D.C. that are more troubling than what I think a lot of us understand. Oh, yeah. What was it about the etching there on the memorial that stuck out to you? So at the Lincoln Memorial, there's most people don't know this. At the base of the memorial, there's a small museum. It's the size of a large classroom. It has plaques on every wall with quotes and statements by President Lincoln about different parts of his legacy. And there's one wall that has five plaques with quotes about the Union, his thoughts on the Union, the country. The plaques are about four four and a half feet tall. They're marble. They're about two, two and a half feet wide. And the writings are engraved in on them. And on one of the plaques is this quote. It says, I would preserve the union. My primary object in this struggle, wrote Abraham Lincoln, is not to save or destroy slavery. It's to preserve the union. If I could save the union without freeing a single slave, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. There's a quote hanging at the Lincoln Memorial that literally states, according to Abraham Lincoln, black lives don't matter. And to be honest, that's only one part of the troubling legacy of Abraham Lincoln, because not only was he a blatant white supremacist who was intent on institutionalizing white supremacy and constitutionally protecting slavery, which he did through the 13th Amendment that we passed, but he was also one of the most genocidal presidents our nation's ever seen. In 1862, he signed the Pacific Railway Act and the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act allocated 160 acres to any American family that went west and homesteaded for five years. And the Pacific Railway Act provided the land and the resources to complete the Transcontinental Railway and Telegraph Lines, which had reached Omaha, Nebraska. Now, there were three major routes of the Transcontinental Railway. One went from Omaha, Nebraska out towards San Francisco. One went from Duluth, Minnesota over to Seattle. And there was a southern route that went through the territory of New Mexico and came out near um, Los Angeles, California. Within two and a half years of signing that bill, after the, hang, the Dakota War of 1862 and the hanging of the Dakota 38, and after he revoked all of the treaties with the tribes in Minnesota and signed a bill giving him the right to remove those tribes without treaty or negotiation, and that removal began in early 1863 and ended in the fall, after the Sand Creek Massacre in Colorado, 150 Cheyenne and Arapaho men, women, and children slaughtered by a U.S. Army there. And after the long walk in New Mexico, where he sent General Carlson down there and used Army captains like Kit Carson to have basically a, a scorched earth campaign, burning the homes, the villages, the, the communities, the, destroy the crops, slaughter the animals of the Navajo people, my people, round us up and march us hundreds of miles down to Bosque Redondo, where we're holed under gun. 10,000 of our people brought down there. Nearly a quarter of them died while imprisoned in this death camp. Abraham Lincoln. Two years after signing the Pacific Railway Act, had literally ethnically cleansed 
virtually all of the natives from the states of Minnesota, the state of Colorado, Wyoming, and the territory of New Mexico, making way for the Transcontinental Railway, literally making him one of the most genocidal presidents in our nation's history. The question I ask audiences wherever I go is, and we shouldn't be shocked by this, right? Because who writes the history books? Well, it's the victors. The United States of America has never lost a war that matters. We've never been invaded. We've never given up land. We've never been disarmed. We've never had a regime change. We've won every major conflict we've ever fought in. Technically, the Korean War isn't over. We pulled out of Vietnam, but only lost some pride. We didn't lose any land. And so as a result, we've been able to write our own history for 250 years. So let's pretend for a moment that Nazi Germany wins World War II. Okay, let's just pretend that. Mm-hmm. How do their history books record Hitler? Well, he'd be the greatest fear ever, right? How would their history books record the Holocaust? Well, we have Holocaust deniers today and they lost the war. Imagine if they won the war. What Holocaust? There was no Holocaust. This is exactly how we treat Abraham Lincoln and exactly how we treat the genocide and ethnic cleansing of Native people. Mm-hmm. We're no different than Nazi Germany. We just won our wars. And therefore, we got to write our own history. One thing that captured me about your speeches uh, that I listened to was that you really seem to emphasize this sort of history isn't just about history. It really has a lot to say about now. And I thought it was fascinating what you said about the 2016 election, because the way that that was framed for a lot of us was that there, there's maybe one candidate who is pushing a sort of white supremacist-like uh, agenda, and there's another candidate who maybe isn't doing that. But you reframed the conversation a little bit in light of your understanding of American history and its foundations. Could you share a little bit with yeah. how you framed that? Yeah, so... In our book, and one of the, one of the things that I, I highlight for people is American exceptionalism is the coping mechanism of a nation that's in deep denial of its genocidal past as well as its current racist reality. So the reason our nation is insistent nationally referring to ourselves as exceptional is because if we are not exceptional, if we don't have a manifest destiny and a special relationship with the God of Abraham, if we do not have some special slot in global history, then we are merely another colonial, genocidal, ethnic cleansing nation that was built on stolen land and enslavement of people. And that thought sounds valuable to people. So we cling with everything we have. It's our coping mechanism. We have to believe we're exceptional. So in 2016, Donald Trump ran for office and he ran on a platform to make America great again. Now, we had just had eight years of a black president, our first black president. And so it was pretty obvious what he was trying to do. He was going to, after these eight years of a black man in the Oval Office, he was going to make America great again. And that was his campaign thing. And he he was campaigned on that over and over. Now, the Democrats, not to be outdone, and Hillary Clinton, as she became the nominee, responded to his slogan and said, America is great already. At the Democratic National Convention, President Obama actually jumped into the fray and he said, America is already pretty great. And then Cory Booker, an African-American senator from New Jersey, who is an aspiring presidential candidate at the moment, he was on the main stage endorsing Hillary Clinton. And in his speech, he acknowledged the declaration refers to natives as savages. He acknowledged that the constitution excludes women. And he acknowledged that the, that the constitution has a three-fifths compromise. Now, this was all very courageous because most Politicians at that level do not acknowledge any of these flaws. He acknowledged all three on one of the biggest stages in our country, which is the the Democratic National Convention. But he preserved his political ambitions 
by following that up and telling the audience that these things do not detract from our nation's greatness. Now, would he ever say that in a room full of... That's, that's kind of mental gymnastics, well, right? Would he I ever mean, say that in a room full of black people? No, he mm-hmm. wouldn't. He'd be laughed out of the room. Would he ever say that in a room full of Native people? No, he wouldn't. He said that. Why? Because the way you get, especially when you're a person of color, the way you get white landowning men to vote for you and support you and look, make yourself safe to them is you tell them how exceptional they are. Mm-hmm. So in the general election, in one of the debates... Hillary Clinton is debating Donald Trump and she expands on her thought. And she says, not only is America already great, but America is great because America is good. And Donald Trump stopped. He looked at her and he said, I agree with her. I agree with everything she just said. See, we were duped. We thought the 2016 election was about racism versus anti-racism, equality versus inequality. If Donald Trump wants to make America great again, and Hillary Clinton says America is already great. They both agree our past, our history, our foundations are great. They disagreed if we were great in 2016. Donald said no and Hillary said yes. Mm-hmm. See, we thought this was about equality versus inequality. It wasn't. What we were debating in 2016 was did we want Donald Trump and the Repub- Republican Party to make us explicitly white supremacist, racist, and sexist again? Or did we want Hillary Clinton and the Democrats to keep our racism, sexism, and white supremacy implicit? Mm-hmm. And we actually voted for implicit because Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, but the Electoral College gave us explicit. So this is the challenge we face as a nation. This is, if you go back and watch that TEDx talk, one of the most shocking things about that TEDx talk is, yes, in 1823, the TEDx talk is called We the People, the three most misunderstood words in U.S. history. I gave it about two years ago. And in there, I go through the doctrine of discovery. and I talk about how in 1823, the Supreme Court uses the doctrine of discovery as the legal precedent for land titles, making an argument that natives are savages and we cannot keep our land because it will remain a wilderness. So therefore, Europeans have to have access to it. And because they're fully human, they have the fee title to the land, they have discovery to the land, they're the title holders. So that case in 1823 creates the legal precedent for land titles. That precedent and the doctrine of discovery are referenced by name by the Supreme Court in 1954, 1985, and most recently in 2005. And I go through the 2005 case in that TEDx talk. I won't do it here. But I lay out that it is one of the most white supremacist Supreme Court opinions written in my lifetime. And it was written and delivered by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Which is the really shocking thing, right? Because she is the voice of dissent on an increasingly conservative Supreme Court. She is the person fighting for the little guy. She is a part of the quote unquote good politics. And yet she wrote the opinion referencing the doctrine of discovery and essentially implying that natives are savages. Why? Because when your land titles are based on a dehumanizing doctrine of discovery, when the title to the home that you live in is dependent upon Native peoples being legally classified as savages, when push comes to shove, white supremacy will be a bipartisan value. And both parties exist to keep the status quo. That's why we have this simplistic two-party system that is controlled on both sides by white landowning men. It's because the status quo, that's what they have to protect the most. This is why. If you want to know why we are so behind the times and all these things, it's because everything about policy and politics runs through white landowning men. 
And so I don't want to oppress them. I don't want to belittle them. I don't want to demean them, but I absolutely want to decenter them, which means my strategy to become president has to get me to the White House, not with their vote, but in spite Mm -hmm. of it. And I have that strategy. It began with campaigning first to Native peoples, then other people from the margins, people of color, women, LGBTQ+, can bring me into more of the national dialogue, but that Mm. still doesn't get me elected. The group that gets me elected are millennials. They're the largest voting bloc in the country. They, as a generation, have been screwed economically, right? They were told, get a good education and you'll get a good job. So they went off to college. And while they were in college, we jacked up the prices and then we changed the way lending worked. And so they came out of college with literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And then there were no jobs, right? They're teaching adjunct at some community college mm-hmm. for 350 bucks a class. There's no jobs, but they're surviving. They're, they're working the gig economy. They're investing in cryptocurrency. Like they're passive aggressively making this thing work. But millennials are very pluralistic. They're the first full generation that has lived in this country after biracial marriage became legal, which was until the late 1960s. And that's something. They have more friends of different racial groups, different ethnic groups, different socioeconomic groups, different gender identities and sexual identities than their parents and grandparents ever had. And they're not joining all these siloed things that the nation has. They're not joining denominations of religions. They're not joining major corporations. They're not joining political parties because they see there's this deep fear they have of becoming like their parents. Now, they're also very aware that they are being left with a overwhelming amount of national debt. Not only do they have great personal debt, but they are being left with an overwhelming amount of national debt. Mm-hmm. And two and a half years ago, when, when our three years ago, when our country passed the latest tax reform bill, they were very aware how many trillions of dollars that debt went up because of that bill that their parents and grandparents were passing. But their parents and grandparents did something very shrewd, which is they lowered inheritance tax. Now, I don't have the stats, but I'm willing to bet that outside of the 1%, the majority of wealth in this nation is held by boomers. Investments, property, homes, held by boomers. And the boomers are getting older. So in the next 10 to 15 years, as the boomers begin dying off, there is going to be a massive transfer of wealth from boomers down to millennials. Millennials right now are open to systemic change. They know something has to change. The system Mm -hmm. is not working. They're being ignored because they own nothing. They have no money. All they have is debt. I tell them openly, we have maybe 10 years to make these changes. If we do not make these changes at a systemic level in the next six to 10 years, before you get the wealth of your parents and grandparents, I promise you, your motivation to change things is going to go out the window. Right. Because now you will need these racist, sexist, white supremacist, siloed institutions to prop up your wealth. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have a once in a multi-generation chance right now to make systemic change. The, The millennials are the first generation in I don't know how long that is not as prosperous as their parents' generation. And that crosses racial lines. It crosses gender identity lines. It crosses sexual identity lines. And so this generation, which is the largest voting bloc in the country, is ready to vote for and enact systemic change. But no one has been there to kind of capture their interest. Bernie Sanders became, became the closest. And so if my campaign can capture the imagination of the millennials, and then the way we get the promotion is through Gen Z. The Gen Z 
they don't know the world without high speed internet. Mm-hmm. Social networking, virtual networking is the air they breathe. We're all trying to catch up, right? With our smartphones and, and email and tech and like we're keeping up with Gen Z doesn't know the world without these things. And if millennials know they've been screwed economically and they're passive aggressively trying to change it, Gen Z is being hurt environmentally, but they're not taking the line down. They're like, oh, hell no. Like they organize a global climate strike without advertising on the networks, right? Mm -hmm. They organize a global climate strike using their network prowess. Just last week, Gen Z took credit for a two thirds empty rally for President Trump. Mm -hmm. They didn't advertise this on ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox News. They didn't send out paid advertising spots or buy targeted ads on on (laughs) Facebook or Twitter. No, they did this through their own networks, through their own social media, through their mm-hmm. own TikToks and, and their tweets. And it completely caught the establishment by surprise. And I, I'm convinced one of the reasons I'm running in 2020 is because this is probably one of the last elections. Maybe the next one might still be possible where you can have a national, even a global audience for the price of a library card and some of your privacy. Mm-hmm. That window is not going to remain open for long. And so these are my strategies to get to the White House by decentering whiteness. And I, I have a plan to get there, not by catering to the vote and the support and the money of white landowning men, but by getting there in spite of them. They are welcome to vote for me. They are welcome to support me. They are welcome to get on board with us, but I am not going to create a political message that caters to them because the reason we have never abolished slavery, the reason we can't decide in 2020 if we want to make constitutional protection for women an an actual amendment in our constitution is because the system has been controlled by the people that it was built to protect. Mm -hmm. And until we can decenter that group, and allow them to join the chorus of voices from the margins, we're never going to get to a nation where we the people truly means all the people. And that's what my campaign is trying to do. Yeah, that's beautiful. Sometime, I would love to have a conversation with you too about theology because we have a class on contextualization and global theology, you know, and the same kind of themes where it's like, there is so much richness of understanding who God is. There's so much, there's so much. And we just, because whiteness is centered in our theology, we are blind to a lot of those things. And I think a lot of times the ways that we theologize, we perpetuate our own blindness. I actually encourage you to read the first four chapters of my book where Sun Chan and I in Unselling Truth, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery, we, we address the question of how did the church get from the teachings of Jesus who said that You should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, who promised his disciples that they would be sharing in his suffering. How Mm -hmm. do we get from that to a doctrine of discovery Mm -hmm. that was now using fear, punishment, and pain to compel people to worship God, that was trying to legislate their theologies, and that was actively killing and destroying people who didn't look like, sound like, act like, or behave like them. Mm -hmm. And that change and, and how that happened for me was absolutely mind opening and it wasn't what I thought it was. I would encourage you to look at the first four chapters of our book on on Selling Truth because it it will transform the way you think about Western Christianity and the modern church. Thank you for joining us for episode 16 of Professors in Rooms Getting Coffee. To hear the rest of our talk with Mark, including the conversation Justin and I had afterward, check out episode 15 at profsandrooms.com. 
Our theme music is by Josiah Enns. Lindsay Zell was the editing assistant for this episode. We hope you can join us for coffee again next week. Thank you.